0: This is great. I guess the pressure's on with all of you showing up for this talk. Um, I think the, the Greek tragedy, I thought the chorus was, is the chorus up there today? We have, uh, reminds me, at uh, Baylor for our basketball games, uh, the group uh, that of students who sit right behind the basketball hoop in what's called the Bear Pit. That's what this group looks like to me. And their job is to harass visitors. So. I'm, um, I guess I should be prepared. Uh, so I'm really glad to, uh, to be here. Um, I've never been to Christendom. I can't believe I've never been to Christendom. I, I went did my undergraduate at the University of Dallas, taught at Thomas Aquinas College in Southern California, I grew up in the DC area. And I was delighted to receive this invitation uh, and have a chance to speak to you today. Um, on the, the topic of Laudato Si and, and Thomas Aquinas. Um, OK, let me begin. I hope there'll be plenty of time for questions and some give and take. There are lots of things to wonder about, to dispute, and to investigate. Uh, a young boy in Terence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, Malick is a native of Waco, now lives in Austin. In this film, early on, a young boy asks his mother, Tell us a story from before we can remember. It's a beautiful line. Malik begins his film. This is a film, I don't know how many of you have seen it, that was known when it came out in theaters, mostly for the number of people who walked out within about 45 minutes. I have two girls. The oldest one, this is her favorite film. The youngest one still will not forgive me for making her sit through this film. A lengthy opening sequence in the film traces the history of the universe from an initial explosion and expansion through the formation of galaxies and planets to the development of life on a poor planet born of a catastrophe, as the Thomas philosopher Charles de calls Earth. The film is an ambitious, ambitious artistic exploration of questions rarely formulated by believers or unbelievers How are we to think about cosmology, about the place of human existence, in the capacious orders of time and space? What matter to us, to the universe, or to God, is our occupying of a speck of seemingly insignificant space in an incomprehensibly vast universe? What we know of modern cosmology and paleontology makes the psalmist's question even more weighty. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. As one character in the film puts it to God, what are we to you? Malik's opening gives dramatic weight to the film's epigraph, which is from Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Those questions frame the story of a family in Waco, Texas in the 1950s. Not only does the film envelop the individual lives of the family members in a cosmic drama of creation, it also continually interjects a vertical perspective into their linear story. The stunning cinematography takes the form often of mildly disoriented, strong vertical camera angles from the ground up through live oaks, which are prominent in that part of Texas, up to the open sky. I think the artistic suggestion here is that we need to look up and down, in addition to before and after, to get our bearings on events and persons. In Malik's hands, the violation of a straightforward linear narrative is neither a postmodern repudiation of personal identity nor, um, nor a celebration of the absurdity of human life. Instead, it opens up the possibility of another perspective on the action, one descending from above or aspiring from below, from or to the god who transcends the entire order of time and space and yet mysteriously intervenes, or at least that's what the characters wonder about. There's sparse dialogue in this film between the character, but that's supplemented by interior monologues, especially monologues that take the form of prayer. This is the only film that I know of that actually does this, something that we as believers do every day, right? We're conducting monologues, we hope, dialogues in our head with God. And I don't know of another film, there are lots of stream of consciousness. I don't know that another film that has done this, that has gone in to the interior conversations, some of which contain comments on other characters. But more often than not, their intended audience is God, to whom they pose questions and express doubt, remorse, hope, frustration. The story begins with the human story begins with catastrophe, with the parents receiving word of the death of a son. The loss props silent maternal questioning. Why? Where were you? Why should I be good if you aren't? Malik's film is a corrective to the contemporary Christian tendency to avoid nature and science altogether. In flight from the doctrine of evolution and in dread of what Pascal calls the silence of these infinite spaces. Many Christians have little to say about the physical cosmos or our bodies. The danger, as authors from uh, DeConnick, whom I quoted before and we'll have more to say about later, and especially Walker Percy, is what's called angelism, right? The temptation to think of ourselves as if we were not animals as if we were not part of a grand, terrifying, and mysterious physical universe crafted by the very same God who created us. What we need most, I think, especially in our art, is a reimagining of the place of human persons in the entirety of the created cosmos. This, I would argue, is precisely what Pope Francis goes some direction in fulfilling in Laudato Si' in which he discerns beneath the contemporary ecological problems a metaphysical and existential affliction of the human person, who is now lost in the cosmos, to quote Walker Percy, increasingly alienated from self, others, nature, and God. Ecological threats are but a symptom of a broader problem. If the present ecological crisis is one small sign of the ethical, cultural, and spiritual crisis of modernity, Francis writes, we cannot presume to heal our relationship with nature without healing all fundamental human relationships. The most audacious claim in the encyclical is not the affirmation of the reality of climate change, but the insistence that to have a coherent and effective environmental philosophy requires both an anthropology and a cosmology. Of course, the American media has focused almost exclusively on the climate change portion of the document. Time magazine fatuously went so far as to label the prayers at the end of the encyclical, the prayers on climate change. (laughs) A careful reading of the encyclical belies easy categorization. Replete with paradox, it affirms the scientific consensus on climate change, even as it insists on the limits to science and casts a wary eye on the notion of technological progress. Brent's views on technology are complex. He's not a Luddite. He observed technology has remedied countless evil, especially in the fields of medicine, engineering, and communications. Indeed, he says, it is natural to the human species to modify nature for useful purposes. Moreover, he notes that the Christian insistence on divine transcendence demythologized nature and thus paved the way for modern science's investigation of the intelligibility of the natural order. You might recall that in Lumen Fide, he argued that faith actually encourages science by infusing in the human sp- soul a spirit of wonder and by insisting that nature <laughs> is always greater than what we have thus far understood. But he also echoes the mid-century worries of a Catholic author like Jacques Maritain and a dozen other mid-century authors, Hannah and C.S. Lewis, you could name many, concerning the way technology leads us to prize means over ends. The means, Maritain writes, have become so impressive that we lose sight of the ends to which technology should be ordered. Maritain writes about that in his little book on education, Education at the Crossroads. And he thought it was it was a problem for education. Francis writes, the idea of promoting a different cultural paradigm and employing technology as a mere instrument is nowadays almost inconceivable. We lack a sound ethics, a culture, and spirituality genuinely capable of setting limits and teaching clear-minded self-restraint. At times, Francis's rhetoric, influenced by Romano Guardini's End of the Modern World, approaches the sort of nightmare vision of humanity found in science fiction films, in which, pick your favorite science fiction film, 80% of them have this plot, uh, which feature human power giving rise to a technology that operates by its own logic of progress, liberates itself from human control, and returns to plague the inventor. Think Morpheus. We gave birth to AI, and then we lost. Francis writes, technology tends to absorb everything into its ironclad logic. In the most radical sense of the term, power is its motive, a lordship over all. That's a pretty dark sentiment. The very popularity of this science fiction plot indicates that the sort of suspicions and fears about technology that Francis is describing are never far from the surface of contemporary uh, everyday life. But Francis does not leave us adrift in a nightmare world. Without repudiating science or technology, he argues, integral ecology calls for openness to categories which transcend the language of mathematics and biology and take us to the heart of what it is to be human. More than any other recent encyclical, right, and this is what caused all the attention and controversy, Laudato Si seems to be very much of the moment. Yet it articulates a metaphysics of creation whose inspiration is in medieval authors, such as St. Francis and St. Thomas, St. Bonaventure and Dante. In this way, it seeks, as one commentator has nicely put it, to cultivate a cultural memory longer than that of the amnesiac modernist, whether right wing or left wing. Laudato calls to mind Chesterton's peculiar and peculiarly brilliant, that's redundant, right, when speaking of Chesterton, discernment of a deep affinity between Thomas Aquinas and Francis of Assisi. In the opening of his little book on St. Thomas, in a chapter entitled Two Friars, Chesterton audaciously aligns the two. He says, this comparison brings us most rapidly to the real question of the life and work of St. Thomas. The two friars, he writes, approach the same problem from different angles. Just as Francis welcomed, created nature, Thomas proved hospitable to the naturalistic thought of Aristotle. In his humility, Francis regarded himself as an animal, referring to his body as a donkey. Thomas provides doctrinal clarity in his insistence that the soul without a body is not a human person. Their receptivity to the created order was made possible by their deep affirmation of the theology of the incarnation. Chesterton calls this their impact, a moment of enlargement, a development of doctrine. Each had a liberating and humanizing effect on religion, one in the order of ma- imagination and the other in the order of intellect. It's really interesting that sections 86 and 87 of Laudato Si, 86 I think has the most quotations from Thomas of any of the sections, especially Thomas' arguments that the variety and multiplicity of beings in their very variety and multiplicity is intended by God directly intended by God, not by secondary, intermediate causes. And then, 87 is one of the really long quotes of the poem, or prayer, Laudato Si, from Francis, in which Francis, in advance of Hopkins, gives glory to God for dappled things. If Laudato calls to mind the best of medieval thought, it's also in deep continuity with the thought of Francis' two immediate papal predecessors was well, interesting that what, just two weeks ago Francis visited the great synagogue in Rome, and he was preceded John Paul II, of course, the first Pope, to visit. and then Benedict went. Francis went. That's, that's the kind of continuity that I see in this document. Benedict was dubbed by Newsweek "the Green Pope." But Benedict was not really breaking new ground. John Paul II wrote with some regularity about the environment. The document moves back and forth. The document Laudato Si moves back and forth. Between secular and theological evidence and argument, Francis reflects on the way the teachings of the faith offer motivation to care for nature and for the most vulnerable of their brothers and sisters. But Francis is not simply saying that Christians have additional motives to care for creation. Given his critique of modernity, He's implicitly posing the question whether contemporary environmentalists and environmentalism can sustain their vision, their hopes, without the sort of philosophical or theological vision of the cosmos and the human person that Laudato Si offers. The strategy here, I think, resembles the strategy in John Paul II's Fides at Ratio, which attempted to rescue reason from its contemporary dissolution. The question that encyclical posed was whether modernity, which prides itself on rationality unencumbered by faith and has become a series of isms, could sustain a commitment to reason. Here, the question is whether the crisis of ecology can be resolved without referencing something like the Christian vision of the created order. I'm, my thinking on this is influenced to some extent by my uh, a point that uh, my colleague Alan Jacobs at Baylor made about a famous article by um, uh, by a scholar named Lynn White in the mid-60s called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. There's a chapter uh, in Laudato called The Human Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And Lynn White's argument was that Christianity is to blame for our ecological crisis, with Francis as one of these, as he always showed up in the 60s, right, as a sort of quasi-heretical romantic Lover of the environment more than the church and God. So Francis gets cited because he's alleged to be heterodox and pointing us uh, in the direction of a proper understanding of the environment. Of course, if if Francis had anything like that, Pope Francis had anything like that in mind, there's a kind of nice twofold response to this essay by Lynn White, right? One pointing out that St. Francis is not what the 60s imagined. Francis to be, and secondly, that Francis who is at the heart of Catholic Orthodoxy actually gives the true Catholic account of the environment and one that could have saved us in advance from ecological catastrophe. The problem for modernity, and this runs through certainly in Benedict um, in a number of places, is that it vacillates between two extremes, right, for those of you who have studied modern thought One extreme is sort of the Enlightenment and Descartes' announcement that he wants to make us masters and possessors of nature. The other is a certain strain in 19th century Romanticism that sees the human as the enemy of the natural order, right? So in one, and these are mirror images of one another, of course, right? Modernity vacillates between these extremes, between envisioning humanity as lord and master over raw material and seeing the human animal as the enemy, Francis focuses mostly on the former. Modernity, he writes, has been marked by an excessive anthropocentrism. Separating the human from the natural, one strain of modernity invites manipulation of nature without limits. Reacting against the destructive consequences of such unbridled autonomy, another strain sees humans as threats. This latter move is what Francis calls biocentrism. Anthropocentrism, biocentrism. Thus, Francis writes, I think quite accurately, We find ourselves in a constant schizophrenia, wherein a technocracy, which sees no intrinsic value in lesser beings, coexists with the other extreme, which sees no special value in human beings. But, Francis urges, we can neither ignore nor simply castigate humanity. There can be no renewal of our relationship with nature without a renewal of humanity. But this raises the question that the contemporary world seems so ill-equipped to answer. Renewal by what means and in light of what vision of humanity and the cosmos. Francis sees persons as parts of larger wholes. We have forgotten that man is not only a freedom which he creates for himself. Man does not create himself. He is spirit and will, but also nature. Francis echoes Benedict. Creation is harmed when we ourselves have the final word, where everything is simply our property and we use it for ourselves alone. The throwaway culture that pollutes the environment finds its correlate in the advocacy of abortion and euthanasia, as Francis points out in one seventeen. And so we vacillate between the Enlightenment view, what Benedict calls the Promethean view, that exalts human beings over nature, and the one hand, and then on the other, and a view that engulfs humans within nature, what Benedict calls the New Pantheism, and John Paul decries as an egalitarian conception of all living human beings. So we find opposed the amoral language of libertarian technocracy against a morally infused and often pantheistic language of environmentalism. Laudato Si, following Benedict and John Paul II, is attempting to carve out and describe a third way. A third way is not quite right because it's not a, it's not as if he's taking the middle position on these two. These two generate one another sort of endlessly in the modern period and are mirror images. It's carving out a, a separate account. Okay. Laudato contains a surprising application of the meditation of John Paul II, not just the strategy that I talked about from Fidesz Ratio, but I would solve the, the meditation of John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor on the danger of the modern opposition between autonomy and heteronomy. The modern emphasis on autonomy grounds dignity and freedom from external rule. Any external constraint is viewed as a kind of heteronomy, an alienation of reason and freedom. John Paul II argued in that famous section of Veritatis Splendor, that as, participation, as participants in a created order, human reason and freedom participate in God's law and wisdom. Instead of alienation, true freedom results from obedience to the limits and order of the whole and from the cultivation of wonder and gratitude for the author of the whole. What John Paul II calls participating theonomy. I think that's what Francis is describing in the ecological and cosmic order. St. Thomas's description as human persons, as ruled rulers, ruled rulers, that runs a fort, this division of autonomy and heteronomy ruled rulers is a corollary of his metaphysics of creation according to which god produces from nothing each and every creature in the universe and the order of the whole eager to defend both divine freedom on the one hand and to avoid sheer arbitrariness in creation this was difficult to do in thomas's time let alone in our own so thomas wants to avoid he wants to defend divine freedom and avoid arbitrariness of that freedom, pure voluntarism. To do so, he crafts an analogy, a weak analogy, but an important analogy, between creation and art. In a key passage in Laudata, Francis quotes Thomas on precisely this point. Nature, this is Thomas being quoted by Francis, nature is nothing other than a certain kind of art, namely God's art, impressed upon things whereby those things are moved to a determinate end. It is as if a shipbuilder were, were able to give timbers the wherewithal to move themselves to take the form of a ship. Interestingly, Francis could have quoted this basic thesis from any number of Thomas's works, especially the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologian, but he takes it from the commentary on Aristotle's physics. That's interesting. Francis reasons further that since the spirit of God has filled the universe with possibilities, from the very heart of things, something new can always emerge. God's ongoing presence in creation, his divine presence, which ensures the subsistence and growth of each being, again, Francis quoting Thomas, continues the work of creation. From Summa Theologiae, uh, Prima Pars, question 104. Although Francis aims to commend the scientific understanding of nature. He doesn't hesitate to deploy theological language. Nature, he says, is usually seen as a system which can be studied, understood, and controlled. Creation can only be understood as a gift from the outstretched hand of the Father and as a reality illuminated by the love which calls us together into universal communion. This is precisely what Thomas quietly underscores in his penchant for the analogy of creation to art. For the artist, there is some point in making, some desire to communicate, to express beauty and wisdom. Moreover, the design of the artist reaches not only to the overall plan, but also and perhaps especially to the intricate details of the artifact, right? That's where we really start to have our awe at a great artist. It's not just taking it in from a distance, it's seeing the intricacies in the details. likes that part of the analogy of creation to art. As Thomas puts it, the causality of God extends to every being, not just to the principles of species, but also to the principles of individuals, and not only to things incorruptible, but also to things corruptible. Finally, for Thomas, the artist can continue to work on what is made until he or she judges that it is complete. Thus, for Thomas, creation, as a work of art, falls under the plan of divine providence by which God orders all things to a cosmic consummation. That the whole of creation is brought into being from no antecedent matter or subject, and that it is brought into being for the sake of manifesting the being of God to other beings, means that creation is sheer gift. This has interesting consequences that can be unsettling. As Ken Schmitz observes, the term gift is rooted in a domain of significance that is charged with discontinuity and contingency, with risk, vulnerability, and surprise. So if we think of creation as gift, we're in the realm of discontinuity, contingency, risk, Vulnerability and surprise. Remember what I said about Malik, wanting us not just to look before and after to the linear flow of events, but up and down, right? To see if there's some other perspective on this action that might be more comprehensive, might require us to reevaluate what we thought about the linear events. Of course, the challenge for the traditional understanding of the human person is not just the early modern contest between dualists. And materialists, or even the large-scale contest between the Enlightenment and Romanticism. One of the biggest challenges still comes from Darwinian evolution. The biggest challenge of Darwin is not a developmental view of life versus a six-day creationist view. Very early on in the Christian interpretation of Genesis, what we would call non-literal readings of the creation narrative were defended, as for example in Augustine's famous book length exegesis of Genesis, although interestingly called de Genesi ad litera. Perhaps a bigger problem for us than evolution is our conception of what we mean by a literal interpretation of a text. Augustine thought he could give a literal interpretation of a text that was not a six-day creation and had to do with God's vision of creation to the angels. That, Augustine says, is the literal meaning of the creation story in Genesis giving to that uh, to someone today who's looking for the literal interpretation but there are lots of other questions some of which are addressed and I move this is the, the last third of the paper now which are addressed in a book called the cosmos an unfinished text on evolution by Charles de whom I mentioned earlier founder of a very famous school of Thomism the Laval school of Thomism which was known for stressing the continuity between Aristotle and and Aquinas, say in contrast to a Toronto or Gilsonian view, which stressed the differences between them. DeConnick wrote this book as a very young man. Didn't finish it, but it's, it's, and it's only in the past 15 years was, uh, or so was made available in English by my mentor at Notre Dame, Ralph McInerney, who was a student of a Very interesting text, very readable text. He begins Cosmos with a reflection on diametrically opposed tendencies in the universe. And what I'm doing here, I should perhaps pause to say, is to suggest I've got another section that I'm not going to read you. I'll give you an idea of what I would say, uh, what I would have said uh, had I read the whole thing. But one of my ideas about this encyclical and Thomas is not just that the citations of Thomas are important for the structure of the whole, that it fits a kind of Chestertonian claim about the affinity between St. Francis and St. Thomas, but that out of a certain strain of Thomism, deconic Laval Thomism has arisen an account of evolutionary development that is, I think, can be defended as Thomistic and also fits with this document in a way. It fills things in in the document. That would be helpful. Okay. so Opposed Tendencies in the Universe from Deconic, the Thomist from Laval. The physical order, seen most clearly in the indefinite expansion of the universe, tends to increasing entropy or disorder, while the biological order, tends to growing concentration. Or in other words, to, as DeConnick puts it, time disperses, life gathers. Time disperses, life gathers, tending towards structures that are more and more tight. Tight means here concentrated or intense, rather than enclosed or predetermined. As we ascend the hierarchy of living things, we encounter beings capable of ever more complex interaction with the world. And of greater degrees of self-determination and freedom. So as we go up the scale, there's both greater interaction externally and a greater interiority. Even more important is the distinction between the living and the non-living. DeConnick argues uh, against beginning with the non-living and trying to establish the living because he thinks we know ourselves better than we know the non-living. Interiority and self-movement are the marks Of the living. As Thomas Aquinas puts it, we experience in ourselves that we have a soul and that it is a source of life. The bodily condition of human life signifies our animality. And the insistence of Aristotle and Thomas both on analogies between human activities and those of other animals means that at least one of the assumptions of evolution, some sort of strong continuity between the animal and the human, does not trouble the Yet, an important yet, However much the activities and capacities of other animals might anticipate human intelligence, human persons are distinct. We share with other higher animals the capacity for memory, but our memory does not merely preserve the past. It recognizes the past as past. Even in the operation of memory, the human animal transcends memory, and in a sense, time. In our lives, we can discern the triumph of spirit over the dissipation of time. DeConnick puts it this way, in human persons, the world is bent in upon itself. Being composed of a spiritual principle and matter, the human person integrates the cosmos. Dekonic draws out the cosmological significance of Aristotle's claim that the human soul is potentially all things. He makes a nice point, a Socratic point, about the peculiar character of human ignorance. The human intellect's very awareness that it does not comprehend the whole underscores its orientation toward that whole, its capacity to make what Dekonic calls a tour of being. Whatever cognitive capacities other animals might possess, they exhibit no tendency to become philosophers. Although you may have a cat or a dog that you think is, <laughs> approaches this. I think this openness to the whole in classical philosophy, which is the central orientation defining the life of the philosopher right? That connects up with what I'm suggesting is the modern task for Christians of cosmology, thinking about the whole, both in science and philosophy on the one hand and in art on the other. DeConnick's argument here goes well beyond what can be established in experimental science, but it is a great merit of his work, and I've only very very briefly summarized it, that he follows the principle of Aristotle and Thomas concerning the irreducible complexity of various modes of human inquiry. For him, as much as for Maritain, one must distinguish first in order to unite. Thus, he's careful to distinguish what we know from experimental science, what philosophical reflection on science might contribute, and what further speculation from metaphysics and theology might add to our understanding of the cosmos. One wonders how many contemporary debates about evolution are doomed to futility and incoherence simply by the failure to make disciplinary distinctions. What can be established by experimental science? What can be established by natural science and philosophy? What can be established by theology? Part of what Deconic is at pains to clarify is the very notion of creation, which, as I've already mentioned, is different from alteration. In creation, Aquinas says, by which the whole substance of a thing is produced, The Thane King can be taken as different now and before only in our way of understanding, because there was no before the creature was created. There is no before creation. The failure to distinguish creation from alteration leads some contemporary cosmologists to equate the Big Bang with creation without wondering about the origin of the primordial stuff that explodes and expands. Working from metaphysics and theology, Deconic considers God's motive in creation. If God creates, necessarily he creates in order to manifest his glory outside, not to himself, as if by creation he could absurdly grow in his own regard. Divine creation is essentially a communication, but you cannot have communication without reception and reciprocal recognition. Deconic's accounts of the motive of divine creation enriches from a theological perspective the understanding of the human person as a creature characterized by open-ended wonder, of the human soul, as in the words of Aristotle, potens omnia, as, as in a sense, all things. The emergent order, this huge emergent order, is compatible for Dekonic with loss, pain, and suffering. Tragedy, writes Dekonic, in a universe shot through with contingency and discontinuity, is essential to cosmic life. Indeed, the greater the order, the greater the prospect for loss and suffering. The greater the physical order, the greater the prospect for loss and suffering. As we ascend the scale of being, the passion for living becomes increasingly intense, and the desire for preservation more ferocious. Death becomes more terrible. The god of our universe is a god of paradox and irony. So much of modern thinking about human nature tends to extremes, to the complete reduction of human beings, to the subhuman, or to their exaltation above the order of nature. Deconics shows us that the presence in the universe of self-conscious life, which recognizes life itself as a good, makes possible both the transcendence of matter and bodily goods through self-sacrifice and the savage, bloodthirsty, dire desire to eliminate all potential threats to one existence. The abundant liberality of nature means that we cannot calibrate in detail the way other natural things serve the end of the human species. DeConnick says, the image of the entire cosmos, which he has just laid out and what I've summarized, as essentially ordered to man, would appear grotesque from the perspective of the astronomy, which provides him a poor little planet born of a catastrophe. But astronomy is not, as both Dekonic and Malik show us, the whole. From the prodigality of nature, together with the presence of chance and randomness, there emerges not only life and biological order, but also the most baffling creature of all, the human being, which has an affinity with the whole. At one point in Cosmos, Dakonic takes aim at those who construe the intervention of man in nature as an evil, which I've already described as a a quasi-romantic view. Perhaps the most striking feature of cosmos is the way in which it finds a place for human beings in the cosmos and predicates human self-knowledge on an education in metaphysics and cosmology, in history and paleontology. In a beautiful sentence at the end, he says, we will only be able to understand ourselves when we understand the universe. Our present is filled with the past. Knowledge of our biological history and of the cosmos of which we are a seemingly infinitesimal part uh, are essential to any liberal education. And I would say, given the popularity in our culture of films like Interstellar, Gravity, The Martian, there's a hunger for stories like this. Participating, and here I move toward the conclusion, in an order not of our own devising, human persons as makers are, as Tolkien puts it, sub-creators, or Thomas. No created being can produce a being absolutely, except as insofar as it causes being this particular thing. And so it is necessary to presuppose that whereby a thing is this particular thing prior to the action by which it makes its own likeness. But Thomas also thinks that we are sub-creators. Thomas, in fact, articulates his own Christocentric vision Of the account of contemplation and beauty from Plato's symposium text I hope you'll read while here we're in the contemplation of beauty remember that scene from the symposium gives rise to beautiful speeches and acts of the virtues the life of contemplation for Thomas has its roots in our affections universally in the natural longing to know and gain wisdom about the whole specifically within the life of faith in that, as Thomas puts it, it is from the love of God that we are inflamed to behold His beauty. But the beholding of God's beauty itself gives rise to the activities of preaching and teaching, and the practice of the virtues. The active life here, for Thomas, arises from and, overflows, in, and uh, overflows from the fullness of contemplation. Sometimes, think of the active life as preceding the life of contemplation. And Aristotle and Aquinas certainly both think that it does in some sense, but especially for Thomas, the fullness of the active life overflows from contemplation. And since creation, as Pope Francis, DeConic, and Thomas all say, is a kind of communicatio, our participation in the life of God means not only contemplating his creation as a means of being united with him, but also imitating his communication to us the creation and incarnation, his descent, his emptying of himself to communicate with us. With few exceptions, contemporary Christian thought and art has focused on the human drama without attending to the shape of the created cosmos or to the way in which we are to perceive and praise God through the created world. The Pope's encyclical, its very title of Francis's praise, calls for and offers a guide to the renewal of the Christian imagination. In this way, the final richly theological sections of the encyclical, particularly on the Eucharist, are intimately connected, intimately connected, to the ecological vision articulated in the body of the text. Indeed, I think here we find a reversal of Francis and Thomas worthy of our friend Chesterton. For Francis is most known in his writings about or writes mostly about the Eucharist in his prose writings, in his writings in his letters, in his writings to his group of followers. While Thomas, think of Thomas as the prose writer and Francis as the poet, but of course, Thomas remains for the Catholic Church, not just the common doctor, but he is the poet of the Eucharist in his devotional writings used in Eucharistic adoration. The Eucharist marks the greatest union among creation, human persons, and God, even as it embodies the virtues of sacrificial gratitude, peace, and joy that Francis calls for. The word itself means thanksgiving. Francis thus offers an explicitly Catholic sacramental response to the danger of modern persons lost in the cosmos. In the Eucharist, God comes to us not from above, but from within. In this case, through a fragment of matter. In the Eucharist, the whole of creation finds its greatest exaltation. As he puts it, in the sacrament, fullness is already achieved. It is the living center of the universe, the overflowing core of love and of inexhaustible life. Joined to the incarnate Son present in the Eucharist, the whole cosmos give thanks to God in an act of cosmic love. Thank you. between nature and art. And um, the thing that jumps out at me in, in that whole section is natural teleology, uh, that, that Pope Francis seems to be giving a, this ringing endorsement of, of natural teleology uh, as being essential for that proper wedding of, of science and philosophy, uh, more broadly of, of reason and faith. Uh, but of course, the natural teleology being one of the, the crucial things that is explicitly denied uh, by the methodologies of, of natural science and, and evolution. right? Um, So do you think Pope Francis sees that natural teleology as being uh, a a contribution that that reason can make to this project? Or does he see more as coming from divine revelation? What do you think? I'm not sure about that. Um, I think think teleology is deliberately not explicit and on the surface there. Um, I think you're right. I mean, you can't read those sections in Thomas. about, that Francis is quoting at length, about God as an artist without, and about God as an artist wanting to communicate without thinking that there are intelligible activities and operations in natural things that we can understand, right, because otherwise there couldn't be communication through them. But it's it strikes me that, um, rhetorically, what he does here uh, is, um, is important because I think by talking about the interconnection rather than the purposes of species and things, um, he's actually appealing to an insight that's more common and less controversial, right? That that um, that if things are connected in some way, then you can start talking about how they're connected. Uh, how they're related and dependent upon one another and and you can work your way back in I think you would have to work your way back in to teleology there um, you know the, I mean it the, the explicitly teleological stuff does now that I think about your original question it does seem to come up more as a theolo- as a correlate or a consequence of theology rather than something he works out philosophically in the way someone like Daconic might elsewhere right um, but I think the important thing here is that the, the way in which he stresses the beauty and interconnection of things is something that we can all appreciate, right? And especially uh, if one is concerned about the environment, one might, I mean, the one of the strengths of environmentalism would be its emphasis upon this interconnection of things, rather than things being sort of isolated bits of matter uh, that interact just according to abstract laws. We actually experience their interconnectedness. Um, So I think, rhetorically, that's an important way for him to begin this conversation. Um, You're a few more steps down the road before you get to acknowledging or embracing teleology. And some people are going to put the brakes on pretty quick. But then you have to say, well, how can you account for this interconnectedness of things? Uh, How do you account for each type of thing in its integrity and in its relationship to other things, the intelligibility of all of that, without invoking something like teleology? At least that's how I would want to start the conversation, from what the encyclical gives us. Yes? Yes. Yeah. But just for my sake, I think it would really help to, yeah. what do you think the three or four key things? Don't do those two things. Okay, um, <laughs> How about that? It's good to clear the ground a little bit. Um, I think if it, you can start out uh, working towards something positive actually by working from, from negating those two things, right? So y- you don't want to think about human beings as um somehow as, as i don't want to pick on descartes too much but it's a good um he sort of sets himself up for this in some ways but um as a kind of thinking thing that's separate from extended matter and um and uh, and that we're you know as he promises in the discourse through his method going to be made masters and possessors of nature and it's, it's pretty clear there and in um, and in his geometrical works where he he really thought he was proving the, the power and truth of his method that this being masters and possessors of nature initiates and and sustains a sort of infinite project right which which would support Francis's point that if you go down this path it's very difficult to establish limits when you have conceived of the human mind and will as separate from nature and manipulating it in whatever ways it wants. If there's nothing in nature that dictates to us its limits, proper uses, improper uses, or then, then what Francis says about the problem of limits arises. So you need an account. I mean, I, I think the first thing you need is something like uh, Thomas's account of soul and body. Now, you can debate which version of that. Could you have a, a more of a Franciscan version? I'd want to argue for more of a straight uh, Aquinas version, but a, a, an account of the human person as a unity of soul and body, of matter and form. Uh, and once you do that, you have a hard time. That's why Descartes frees the intellect up from matter so that it can get this kind of perspective over and above the material world and manipulate it. So if you start with an account of the human person as a composite of soul and body, that would be the first thing, right? The other thing that you that's really hard to do, and this comes up in that quote I had about property there, which um, the, the other side of this is a kind of Lockean view of the body as property, right? Um, that uh, over which we have use and which has a certain preeminence in, um, certain contemporary liberal views of autonomy and the body, uh, especially affecting reproductive rights and sexual orientation sometimes, especially prominent in reproductive rights. But if you have a Thomistic view of the body, it's, um, you're sort of ruled out the possibility that you could think of your body as property that you possess and can use as you wish. That's just a bizarre way to think about me not my body, because my body is me, right? And your body is you. So I can't abstract myself from it and think about it as property in that way. So I think the the Thomistic account of of body and soul, for those who are led to affirm it, rules out that whole side of the ledger that that Benedict and Francis are worried about. Um, the, The other side, the biocentric side, the side that wants to see human persons as enemies of the natural world, It'd be better if we committed species suicide, right? For for the cosmos than for us to remain around. We are we are a pretty big threat, um, not just to the environment, but to one another and to ourselves. I mean that's that's the deconic part about as you rise up uh, in the hierarchy of being, violence becomes more prominent and much more damaging so there's something right about that about that view of the human person we are capable of self-destructive other destructive nature destructive evil on a grand scale and that's something we need to reckon with I don't think we should shy away from that as Christians that's that's a thoroughgoing Christian view of sin and of original sin and habitual sin so I would want to affirm that, just as you want to affirm from the other side the fact that we have a certain freedom that raises us above mere matter. Um, I would want to affirm on the, on the romantic side the danger of the human person in the cosmos. Uh, we pose serious dangers. Um, I would also want to affirm there um, uh, one of the, the California Poets calls the the uncentering of our lives from ourselves. I think that that the romantic view, which wants us to see us as parts, sometimes threatening and harmful parts, is something that Francis is Francis is keen on that, on that side of the romantic view. And it's the side that's there in Francis and in the poetry of Hopkins, right? Um, but it's not pantheistic. Right? So on it doesn't get rid of the distinctiveness of the person, the human person, or the distinctiveness of God. The Romantic view, collapse tends to collapse all of that into a pantheism. Right? So you need, after establishing human nature, you need principles to think about person, nature, and God. Um, and and some of that's gonna have a certain resonance in the Romantic tradition, which is why someone like Hopkins could be deeply influenced by certain romantic views of nature and yet remain thoroughly orthodox. Uh, I think think one of the things you could say that Hopkins does with with romantic poetry is to save it from itself, right? Some of the dangers in it, uh, which led to its own kind of destruction in the mid to late 19th century. You can see what Hopkins does by restoring our appreciation of nature as a gift from God. Um, it enables us to appreciate nature without idolizing it, without collapsing human, because our very fact that we can appreciate it means that something distinct and interesting is going on in our interaction with it that the pantheistic view doesn't take account of. There's this really weird part of that thing you want to call a homogeneous whole, which is it can think about the whole. That's weird. That's something that you gotta make sense out of, right? If you're a pantheist, you got to a pantheist needs to be pressed to make sense out of that. Um, the Catholic view can make sense out of that, uh, and can make sense out of beautiful poetry about nature from Francis to Hopkins. Those would be some things that I would that I would start with. Other of themes are very strongly there. The prior order, man as, as having to discover that order, not autonomous. But this aspect of, of, of man is kind of capable of the whole as really separate, in particular the point of man as other things have other things are ordered towards him. So people have pointed out that don't seem to be so much uh, kind of the human difference. It's not so much emphasized yeah. in the particular world. You say that. Um, Yes and no, uh, there's, yeah, I skipped this passage, this quote from Francis. When it was toward the end, I was feeling like I was going on too long. Um, after the bit about Tolkien and Thomas both thinking of us as subcreators when we create, I had a quote from Francis, uh, from, from section 81. Human beings, if we postulate a process of evolution, one of the weird things about this document, if you wanted to start hammering on the climate change and things like that is that, he's. I, I need to check the, the original on this, but he says even if we postulate a process of evolution, it's almost like he treats evolution as more hypothetical than climate change, which is a little, that's a little odd. Uh, but anyhow, I, I need to work that out. Human beings, even if we postulate a process of evolution, also possess a uniqueness which cannot be explained by the evolution of other open systems. And I I cut some out of here, but here's the part that I am with. Our capacity to reason, to develop arguments, to be inventive, to interpret reality, and to create art are signs of uniqueness which transcends the spheres of physics and biology. And I think there are other passages like that. Um, the, The part that isn't. I need to go back through. That's a really good question about other things as ordered to human persons. I mean, DeConnick stresses that very much in his account. And that's a to miss. DeConnick thinks that's the only way we can have a sort of full sense of evolution, of what's going on in evolution. Um, And that, of course, is much debated amongst theorists. Um, You're right that that, I would say that's not nearly as prominent as. The distinctiveness of the human person. Um, I wonder, I mean, to go back to my colleague Alan Jacobs' reading of this encyclical as a, at least part of it, as a kind of rejoinder to that Lynn White article, which was so influential, it's actually a pretty flimsy sort of 15-page, you should look it up. Um, It's just, there's not that much to it. Uh, It wouldn't, I mean, um, a peer-reviewed journal today wouldn't really publish it, but it's just filled with kind of claims about the Middle Ages and Christianity and how it's anti-environment. If, if Jacobs is right that the encyclical is, at least in part, a rejoinder to that argument, then there might be reason to be a little quieter about the way in which these things are all ordered to human persons, right? Because that's the, that's the leverage in the opponent's argument that heads white right down the road of saying, ah, order to human persons, masters and possessors of nature. Can use it however they and then you've got to have a much more the argument's got to be much i mean i think you've got to have that argument but just as i'm not sure you want to have on the surface of the document the argument about teleology i'm also not sure you want to have that argument on the surface of the document um but i think you're going to have to have it eventually there's only so long you can put off the evil day no no questions about Christopher Nolan, or Gravity, or <laughs> Tree of Life. Yes, up here in the bear pit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just wondering, how do you recommend me apply Pope Francis view to our daily lives as college students? Okay, good question. That's the five pages I didn't read, sort of. <laughs> um, so the other part that I wanted to talk about was, I think there's a, a really rich, um, account of liberal education that comes out of this document. That's, that's very Joseph Peeperish, ish if I can use that ugly, do that to Peeper's name. Um, what would you say there, Peeperistic? I mean, it's not like Timistic. <laughs> Josephish. ish um, uh, And I'm thinking of Leisure, the Basis of Culture, uh, which is a book I first read as a <laughs> junior at the University of Dallas way back. In, uh, in the ancient days. Um, and interestingly, uh, so I think, I think that's interesting in itself. I think there's an account of liberal education, which is, I would say, broadly Thomistic, but with an aesthetic element that has not been at the center of the Thomistic traditions. They are in people like Maritain, I think unjustly neglected in others. Uh, and so I wanted to argue that a sort of Thomistic understanding of liberal education is what would come out of the of the document. Um, interestingly, and not surprisingly, lots of Catholic colleges and universities have engaged in, a, I think, a, 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 there were a number of them, Jesuit schools, uh, some sort of decla- what they call a declaration of commitment about Laudato Si' and ecology. Now, and all these things may be uh, good, I imagine almost all of them are good, uh, you know, all of these things focused on green campuses and, and so forth. And also on some sort of education about the environment. But notice what happens there. It's what happens every time we want to add something to our curriculum. We don't rethink how this might be already implicit in what we're doing or how we might fit it into the heart of the curriculum some way. We add it on as a little extra. What does Francis think is the problem with our minds, one of the many problems, with our intellects in the modern age, this segregation of our intellects into thinking about this thing in isolation from that thing, right? The very way in which the disciplines have become so specialized, and this is a critique that's becoming increasingly common in research universities in particular, leads you to think that the institution that might do the most to alter the way to, to promote an integral ecology are not going to be able to do it because they're set up to in, to feed into to inform in students' souls to shape students' souls in specialized ways. Right. So I would say that what I mean there are lots of particular ecological things one could think about doing uh, being less wasteful and I you know I certainly think there's a strong we ought to be asking ourselves, with our technology, right? We need, we need temperance with our technology, um, uh, it, with all the devices that we have uh, about us and that we're connected to, all the time, almost. I mean, I'm, I, I do a lot of my work as an administrator, on my phone, uh, email, texting, etc. But, it. it it certainly disperses the soul to distraction in a way that is counter to the spirit of wonder and receptivity that Francis, and here's where I see the echoes of someone like Pieper, Um, it it also leads us gradually to the point where the the technology slowly is controlling us, not like the matrix or something like that to that extreme, but where it, and we do have to ask about our freedom Right, are we made more free by the use of this technology? Or are we by giving ourselves over to it, becoming enslaved to it in some way? That's a really important question for you at this point where you're forming habits for the rest of your life, right? Um, I think the bigger questions are about the kind of formation as persons, the specialization that Francis worries about, the tendency to instrumentalize everything, Liberal education should be the chief place, in addition to worship, where we experience an anti, utterly, utterly useless, this is our advertising plea for Christmas, like <laughs> a, a useless education. I tried at a recruitment event last Friday, I think admissions and Bella will never let me speak again. I, <laughs> I told the parents we were preparing them, their students, as much for loss and failure, as we were for success. That's the, when you see ads for Baylor now, that's going to be, Baylor, <laughs> give us your life savings, we'll make you an unsuccessful loser. Um, I, I had a point there somewhere. Uh, but, but in education, right, there's a moment in Aristotle's metaphysics where he says metaphysics is the highest because it's useless. What he means by that is it can't, it, it can't be subsumed under any other of this contemplation of the whole and of God, how do you use that? Right, You're doing something wrong if you're thinking about using that. So too with a capacity to wonder at beauty and truth and goodness. These are things that where I think a, a liberal education and aesthetic education, as Francis calls it, there's a there's a really interesting passage toward the end where he talks about not just the need to irrigate the external world, but to irrigate the interior world, and it reminds me of that passage in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, a book from that period when Maritain is writing and Hannah Arendt's writing on education in the 40s, um, when Lewis says, look, the problem for the educator today, 1940s, it's a lot worse today than it was then, is not, um, is not to cut back forests in the souls of our students, but to irrigate deserts right? It's not that there's all this tremendous richness of education that most of our students are bringing with them. It's a vacancy, right? It's that their moral imagination has not been formed and filled in a way that enables them to go on in their education on their own. So and I think Francis makes a nice point about that, right? We're not just irrigating the external world, we've got to irrigate the interior world. That's what liberal education ought to do. So liberal education is correcting specialization liberal education as correcting the utilitarian view uh, of uh that we americans are so given to them. there's a great passage in tocqueville you know where he says that um that americans can sense that material comfort and happiness is just around the corner and just as they think they're going to grasp it they die Right? It's kind of a bleak view of America. He, was, he, he loved America, but he saw a certain dark side in us that I think was accurate. That utilitarian view of everything as a means to the next thing, that's corrected in liberal education, right? And the need to irrigate the deserts of our souls, which is really at the root of the ecological crisis for Francis, that's also in liberal education and in worship, that's a long, a lot of things there. Get to work. <laughs> yep, in the back. Uh, thank you so much first for your insights, Dr. Hibbs, uh, on this topic. But one thing, uh, but I do have one question. So um, right, right after a lot of, of seeking came out, there was a lot of um, talk about it in you know, the news and in, and in punditry. Uh, and well, what do you think about um, scholarly reception right after? Um, it, it came out in the future, I know we, we had questions about two different issues, natural teleology and also um, things being ordered towards man. Do you think that the scholarly community is ready to receive you know, a document like this and actually take uh, the, the issue seriously or not? Who knows? I, I mean, it's on any important issue today, um, everything is so politicized that it's, and I think we have, this is partly what liberal education teaches us to, to do as well, not to ignore the political, but to step back from it, to make it, to make us realize that um, one of the things that makes us higher than mere matter also makes us higher than merely the order of politics, which is not the order of mere matter, right? I don't wanna equate those, but, um, you know, um, I, I think the right and the left sort of, I think the right was um, uh, irrationally fearful of this document. And the left had irrational exuberance about the document. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, the the right has, and um, the right has often fallen into a kind of Francis derangement syndrome. Um, And he's all over the map, I can see why you could get Anybody on the right or the left in the middle could get frustrated and be confused by Francis. But, um, and on the left, I think there's been a kind of a rational exuberance that, that just ignores 80% of the document of Laudato Si. And so um, I think if we're Catholic first, and if we're ph- or just philosophers first, either one will do here, um, we need to read it and think about it. On its own, t- and that doesn't mean we can't criticize it or raise questions or say that doesn't make any sense to me. That's fine. Uh, but you know, I found myself—I I- was—I um, was wary before it came out because I thought it was going to be this little pamphlet on um, climate change, um, and instead, it it's this big, probably—you know—like some of J.K. Rowling's late novels could have used a better editor. <laughs> Uh, It could have been cut quite a bit, I think, just to talk about the style of it. it. It harms the the message that it's sort of all over the place too much, and the beauty of it, I think, is harmed somewhat by that. But I found myself just flipping one page after another saying, oh my goodness, this thing is really rich. And those are the things I was trying to point out here. I mean, as a person who spent most of his life Reading and, uh, and teaching those medieval authors um, and, and become even before Pope Francis really kind of obsessed with the figure of Saint Francis who terrifies me. Um, that kind of holiness terrifies me. Um, give me a good pagan you know, that's easy, <laughs> much easier, much easier to deal with um, but um, but I just found you know someone who's Bonaventure Aquinas, Dante, I, I just I just thought this is. This is the kind of thing I wish I had done with those authors, right? To, to make them speak to the contemporary world, both about pressing and enduring issues. Whether, I mean, you could point to people who've tried to do this, I think. There, there's some stuff out there. But, and you know, we can't ignore the politics. And we have views, and we voice those views, and we vote, and we fight, and we argue. That's fine. But we need to step back and, and look at it and see what's really enduring I see more, much more continuity uh, with the medieval tradition and, as I mentioned, with John Paul II and Benedict than, than most people on either right or left have. I think that's, that's the point I would want to hammer, hammer home about this. I see deep connections there. If well, those are more questions, we probably can get Dr. Gibbs to stay a few more minutes afterwards. Thank you so much, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you.